second reading. So if you join me by opening God's word to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 10. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, sorry, even when we were dead in transgression, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Trish and Brian, for praying for us. Uh, Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful passage this is for us to reflect on, to see your extraordinary love for us. Help us to understand that deeply today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started on a new series on the church. On the church, and we considered last week's topic, the church, God, anyone? The church, God, calls. The church, God, calls. And so when we considered that topic, we got to see into the eternal purposes of God, that from all eternity, God already chose us, predestined us, that we might belong to God, that we might be gathered through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be his people. And today we're going to consider our next topic, that is the church God loves. We get to see into the very heart of God. And so the church God loves. The church God loves. Just consider those few words. That statement in itself is extraordinary the church god loves because why should god love anyone in the first place why why do we expect that to happen why why would god love us have you ever thought about that because in our secular society today if you think about it god is either dismissed outright or god people say does not exist or if he does exist he's just irrelevant Or if he does exist, maybe he should just love us, and that is his job. His job is there to care for us, to love us, to help us. But why? Why do we 
have this expectation that God is love. It's how so many people think, if they think and believe that there is a God. It was, in fact, Henry Hein, 19th century German poet. He died muttering the words that so many people like to believe. He said, of course God will forgive. That's what he said. But why? Why is it that it's God's job to forgive and to love? Why would anyone expect that to be the case? You see, in the ancient world, no one thought that way about any of the gods at all. The gods of the pagan world did not love anyone. They played ugly pranks on each other. They played pranks on human beings. Aristotle, he taught that gods could feel no love for human beings. Instead, the gods were there to use, abuse, they do wicked things to human beings. And humans, our job were to offer sacrifices, otherwise the gods would be there to get us. They'll be angry, they'll hurt us, they'll be capricious. They demanded their sacrifices and they're out to get us. And if we don't offer, we'll get hurt. You see, in the ancient world, the belief of gods in the ancient world was not like what we would expect today in our Western world. And so when Christianity came onto the scene and people started to claim that there is in fact a God who loves, a God who is merciful. In the ancient world, that was laughable. For a God to express love or mercy, that was seen as a defect in character. In fact, even in some other religions today, for example, in Islam, Allah might be described as loving or merciful. But you see, his love is always contingent upon human behavior. I love you only if you love me first. Or in Buddhism, in fact, there's no sense of love there at all. The whole purpose is to lose yourself, to lose your personhood. And so love doesn't really matter ultimately. And so when we consider this topic, the church God loves, how is that at all possible? Why would God do that? Why should we expect that? But it is true. And we see it only in Christianity, that God does indeed love, such that the Bible would even say that God not only can love and does love, but the Bible would even go as far as to say that God is love. And so the church God loves. It's extraordinary. Because if we consider this passage and understand it, we see the type of people God has decided to set his love upon. And they're not lovable at all. In fact, it was this passage, Ephesians 2, that I chose to be the, the first devotion in my first session meeting after my induction with our elders. And that's because I wanted us as the leaders of this church to reflect and to know with crystal clarity in our minds and to believe wholeheartedly in our hearts who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in love, before we even start to think what we do for him in his church. You see, it's a very important order to understand first who we are before what we do. And so let's have a look at this passage, who we are. First, we see here, more specifically, who we were. It is past tense. And the picture that is painted in the first three verses, it is so dark and bleak and black. 
it paints a picture of of people as low as you can possibly go it, it describes people as as bad as you can possibly can be and we're told here we're dead we were once dead we were enslaved and we were condemned you see the bible does not shy away from calling things as they are we were dead which means the living dead we yes we might be breathing and walking and talking but spiritually we were dead and that's simply because every single soul every single person was made by god for god to be with god and so when human beings decide to live life without god that is to be dead spiritually dead and so look at verse one as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins to transgress that means you, you've broken something you've broken something of god you've broken his laws you've trespassed a barrier which you shouldn't have and so the, the lord do not covet if we've coveted ever if we've ever been greedy and envied then we've trespassed we've transgressed something and we've transgressed in this way and to sin but that means to fall short we've fallen short of the standards of god and so for god to say be holy and perfect and if we are not then we have we have fallen short of the standards of god we have sinned and so even this first verse it paints a very bleak picture of humanity we were dead rebels and we were dead failures not a pretty picture at all and so if you understand just that picture why should god love anyone in the first place but now the picture gets worse not only dead but enslaved and we see he enslaved in three ways enslaved to the ways of this world enslaved to the devil and enslaved to our fallen human nature and here it is again making a claim on every single person the picture is black and dark and no one is exempt we once were like this if not still enslaved to the world and so look at verses one and two now as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world now what does that mean it means that the world enslaves us the ways of the world which stands in opposition to god enslaves us it entraps us and it ensnares us it causes people to believe all the crazy stuff we believe in this world that there is no god or if there is he's just irrelevant or it enslaves people even to hate god i mean if we just consider what's happening in our world today it is just crazy the things we hear reported consider what's happening in our rugby world for example if you've been watching the news and up to date with that it really shows what has come to our world what has come of our world i mean why would our wallabies player samuel karigi he expressed on easter he expressed on easter these words as a christian thank you jesus for dying on the cross for me i love you jesus sounds quite safe and 
everything and afraid to do that. But yet it was so necessary a thing. And he was compelled to apologize for that. I mean, what does that show of our world? Well, it shows that our world stands in opposition to God and is looking to enslave people. Yet at the same time, it withdraws people into worshipping the gods of our world, materialism and wealth and fame and glory and anything that displaces God. Once, we were enslaved like that as well. But not only enslaved to the world, we also read here, enslaved to the devil. Verse 2 again. You followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You see, what this acknowledges is that there is such a thing as evil and wickedness and the devil. It seems in our world today, people shy away from calling anything evil or speaking of anything like the devil. But what do you call when you see the things that has happened in our history and continues to happen today? What do you call the massacres in the killing fields of Cambodia? What do you call it? It was genocide. What do you call the gas chambers of Auschwitz? What do you call it? It was not just a preference. It was not just their idea of what was good for society. It was evil. What do you call 9-11, if you remember that? Or the terrorist bombings that continue to happen all around the world. People thinking that it's a good idea to become a suicide bomber. What do you call that? It was evil and it remains evil. You see, it's so unfashionable, particularly in the Western world, to believe that the devil is real. But yet what is he doing? He's busy at work, wreaking havoc, seducing, blinding, corrupting. I mean, you, you see this all the time, even in our cities. I just find so many ironies that, that, that crops up on our news. Last month, just consider this irony. Last month, in the streets of Melbourne, there was an angry protest against animal cruelty. It was a vegan protest. Not sure if many of you were affected by that in the city. They stopped traffic and all that. Now, they claim meat is murder. It's okay if you want to be vegan. There's no problem with that. That's okay. But the irony is that in this very same city, it is okay. It is legal. It's even celebrated to kill unborn babies. I mean, protesting against animals. But yet, at the same time, it is legal to kill an unborn baby. What do you call that? You see, the way the devil gets away with it today, in, West, in the Western world in particular, is that he convinces us that he doesn't exist, that there is no such thing as evil. And once, they're told here, we were enslaved to that as well. Enslaved to the world, to the devil, and also once enslaved to our fallen human nature. Look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures and following its desires and thoughts. And that is why when people look at something that is so wrong, it is just so wrong, but yet people do it anyway. Why? Because they are following their sinful desires, their corrupt nature, and they can't help themselves. I mean, how could anyone, or do we 
it's very common. How could anyone think that it is okay to have an affair, to tear families apart, to destroy marriages? I mean, how can you look at that and think it's okay? But it's common. Not just in the movies, in real life, because it is the sinful nature of people. They can do it. How could anyone think that it is okay to oppress the weak and vulnerable, to traffic children and women, which still happens today? How can you look at that and think it's okay? But it happens. And why? Because people are captives, enslaved to their sinful nature. The way of fallen human nature is that it is self-indulgent, self-seeking, self-exalting and self-loving and it is enslaving. You see, the first three verses is just meant to paint a flat picture of humanity. It is bad, it is dark, it is as low as it can possibly be. But we haven't hit rock bottom yet. What Rock bottom is what we see next. Not just dead and enslaved, but also condemned. Not just in the ground, rotting away. That's not the worst of it. Dying is not the worst. What's worse is to stand under the judgment of God. God does not judge on a whim. He's not capricious like the pagan gods. God is perfect and righteous and holy and will not let any sin go unpunished. And so verse 3, the last bit. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So these three pictures paint, uh, three verses paint a picture of humanity as we are and as we were, dead, enslaved, and condemned. And so now, do you see how remarkable it is that God would love anyone in the first place? If that is how everyone is, it is so remarkable that God would choose to love anyone in the first place you see we have to understand how tremendously extraordinary this love of god is this love of god that is so different to the way we normally love you see when we talk about love what what do we mean when we say i love you what, what do we mean by that or when god says i love you what does he mean by that a little change of pace here suppose a boy, we call him James. Let, let's try to understand how he might understand love. Let's suppose he takes a keen interest in a girl, Jane, invites this girl out for lunch, takes her to McDonald's, and it's a nice day. And so they thought, well, let's take this Macca's lunch over to Blackburn Lake, which sits by the side of the lake where the sun is shining, the water's glistening, and the water there smells a bit, but anyway, it's romantic. They start to eat, James enjoying his quarter pounder. And he, tur he tur turns to Jane and he says to her, You know what, Jane? I love you. Now, what would a boy like that mean when he says that? Well, he could mean many things, can't he? He could be saying, Jane, I find you so beautiful to look at. Your face doesn't hurt my eyes. Your, your personality is so sweet. And this quarter pounder melts in my mouth, but your voice just melts in my heart. And I can't imagine life without you. I love you. I mean, that's what he could mean, right? 
what does he mean when he says that? Well, perhaps what he means is that I love you because I find you lovable. That's what he could be saying. He's not saying here, you see, James, let me be honest with you. Your personality stinks. Your eyes, they, they bulge, they look like vultures. Your ears, they, they flop like elephants. Your breath, unbearable. That's why I'm wearing a mask. Your sight really hurts my eyes. Uh, it's not really helping me enjoy this burger. But I love you anyway. Now, he wouldn't be saying that, would he? Now, when we talk about the love of God, what is the love of God like? The first one, where he finds us lovable. Or the second one, where there's nothing lovable at, about us at all. But he loves us anyway. It's God looking upon us and, and saying, you people here at Surrey Hills, so adorable, so lovable. Your personal personality is so sweet. And I can't imagine life without you. Well, verses 1 to 3 shows that that's not what we were like. Not at all. Instead, it's more like the second one. Not only does your personality stink, morally speaking, you are filthy and wretched. Your sight just grieves my heart. You've enslaved yourself to the dominion of darkness, to all that stands against you. You are dead in sin and trespasses. Nothing lovable about you at all. But I love you anyway. I would love you even to the extent of sending my son Jesus. Watch him crucified, body broken, blood flowing for you. I would love you to such an extent. You see, we have to understand how extraordinary the love of God is. It is so different to how we would often talk about love. You see, God's love is extraordinary because what were we like? Dead in our trespasses and sins. And so those verses there, it's meant to help us see we cannot think too highly of ourselves at all. We are more wretched than we dare believe. It was J.I. Packer who, who said this. He said, It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the object of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract it or prompt it. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason for his love can be given save his own sovereign good pleasure. And that's what we see in our text. So what has God done? He loved us and he made us alive. He made us alive. The dead cannot help themselves, but God can. So look at verses 4 and 5 now. But it's a very important adversity. You know, even though you're dead in sin, under the dominion of Satan, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And that's our title. That's our topic. The church God loves. Object of wrath, now object of love. Those who were dead, now made alive. And it is all for 
all by grace, unmerited, undeserved. This was because God loved. And that is true beyond. And if God loves us in such a way, who then are we? Who have we become? Well, we know what we were, but who are we now? Well, remember the first three verses is to paint a picture of black, bleak humanity. That was what we were like, as low as you can possibly go. But now God turns things upside down. He raises us to the highest place you can ever be in the entire universe. We were under the wrath of God, but now we were raised. We are raised and seated with Christ, the highest place in the entire universe. And that all happened to Christ himself. God did that to Christ, raised him, ascended, seated with God in heaven, and he also did this for the church, made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ in heaven. From the lowest point in all the universe to the very high point. Is that extraordinary? Dead in sin now raised and seated with Christ in heaven. And we see that, verses 6 and 7. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, in heaven we'll be like the trophies of God's kindness and grace. We are walking evidence of, of God's love, God's extraordinary love, what he did for dead sinners, raised us to be with Christ in heaven. And that's why I picked this passage to be the first one I shared in our devotion with our elders. To reflect on this passage because it's to remind us first what God has done for us. It's very easy to begin a ministry thinking, okay, what can I do? What can we do for God and his church? But no, we need to first understand who we are in Christ. We are with Christ. We are for Christ before we think about what we do for Christ. And so who we are, that is who we are. We are with Christ in heaven. Now, what do we do? Well, we need to think about what we do. Well, if we are talking about salvation, if we're talking about having a place with God, being with Christ in heaven, then what do we do? In fact, we do nothing. We do nothing for that at all. Because if you're dead in sin, if you're dead, you can't give yourself life. If you're enslaved, you can't free yourself. And if you're condemned, you can't acquit yourself. It is only God who can do such a thing. So what do we do for our salvation? It is nothing. Look at verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this, that is this grace, this salvation, this faith, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Which means the faith that you have to believe that itself is God's gift. Not by works so that no one can boast. And so no one can, in the end, stand before God and claim an iota of merit. I'm saved, God, because I did just a little bit. 
God, you may have done 99% of the work. You sent your son who died for me. Yes, that's true. But I did maybe 1%. He says, no, not at all. God did 100%. By nature, we were under wrath, and it is only by grace that we can be saved. No boasting before God at all. But for a Christian, it's only a profound, deep humility before Almighty God. So he sort of shares God's love. What do we do? Nothing when it comes to our salvation. And so this is so important for us as a church to never forget. If you are not yet a Christian here this morning, then that is for you to understand that you being saved does not depend on you. You'll never be good enough, never know enough, never be ready enough in order to be saved. It is always absolutely free. Receive by faith, which means it is free. God, you promised, so I will believe. Absolutely free because it comes from the godly life. But if you are a Christian then, you must also remember this, that no point in our life of service will earn us a place in heaven because of what we've done. Nothing we do will ever save us. Baptism doesn't save us. Good deeds won't save us. And what that means is that we can have absolute confidence in our own salvation. We are already raised and seated with Christ. Absolute confidence. 100%. If I were to die today, I'll be in heaven. You can have that confidence. Why? Because it does not depend on me anymore. And it's why Christian funerals are so always remarkably different to other funerals I've attended. There's just a different atmosphere of hope. All the funerals that I've been to, everyone always speaks well of the person who died. The eulogies are always glowing. But for the one who died in Christ, their confidence of their salvation rests in not how well they live their life, not how good and glowing the eulogies are, but it rests solely in the God who loves and freely saves. And so we do nothing for our salvation, 100% God. But once we are saved, then what do we do for God? For everything we do is for Christ. The church God loves is the church that must love. The church God loves is the church that must love. It's what God created us for, to do good works. We do good works, love, share, care, serve. Not so that we can be saved, but it is always out of deep gratitude to the God who loved us first. It's what God prepared for us to do. God did not save us so that we can continue to live in our old ways of self and living for the gods of this world, enslaved. Instead, look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I mean, wasn't that what Jesus said in our first reading, that we might bear fruit, fruit that will last. Nothing for salvation, but we do everything for Christ. And so every single day, what that verse tells us is that every single day, 
we actually do good work for Christ, as we have been prepared for, to express our love for God, to express our love for our neighbor, to express that I'm no longer dead, no longer a slave, no longer condemned, to reflect the life I now have with Christ, and to reflect a life that shows I'm indeed loved by God. So it's become my daily prayer for my children and with my children, knowing that every single day, because we are loved by God, I must do my good works today for God. And so every day in the car on the way to school, I will pray with my kids, uh, and it's a very short prayer, and it's a prayer that just repeats this verse. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for Esther, Caleb, and Ethan, and we pray that you will help them to do the good works you've prepared ahead for them to do today, to help them to do. And that's our daily prayer for them. The church God loves is the church that must love. And so let me ask you, our church, how do you think we are going up here? Understanding God's love and loving as God has loved. When I was a younger Christian, one of the books that really helped change my life, convicted me in how I should live my life, it was a book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. You may have heard of this before. One of these chapters, it reminds us if God loves us this much, like what we see in this passage, how do we live for God? And in one of these chapters on the love of God, he asks a few questions, and they're really wonderful questions for us to reflect on, on how we live for God who loves us so much, so extraordinarily. It did change my life earlier on. It helped me consider maybe I would leave engineering and do something else. And these are the questions. He asked, why if God loves us so much, why do I ever grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God has placed me? It's recognizing the sovereignty of God, isn't it? It's recognizing that God always loves me, never stops loving me. And so why? Why am I ever distrustful, fearful, or depressed if God loves me, as it says in this passage? If God loves me, why do I ever allow myself to grow full, formal, and half-hearted in the service of God who loves me so? That was one question that really convicted me. If God loves me so much, how can I be so half-hearted with the things of God? If God loves us so, why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God has not all my heart? God loves us so. Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others? My wife, my husband, my family, my neighbor, people at church, people at work, anything at all about the greatness of God's love for me? And I found those convicting questions. If God loves us so, knowing that we were sinners condemned, how must I love? The church God loves is the church that must love. And so how do you think we are going up here? Well, hopefully we'll be putting into practice that last one, prepared for good works, loving as he loves. 